Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 139, and the Grand Army of Natal has marched over the Tugela River to attack the Umizi of Ndonokasuka. And if you've been following, you know that a large Zulu army has camped to the north of Ndonokasuka, led by Mpande Senzangakona. We're getting straight down to business. It's the 17th of April, 1838, and after crossing the Mati Tugela, the Grand Army surrounded Ndonokasuka. The first engagement was short and sharp. Virtually all the inhabitants, mainly women and children, were killed, and the village burned to the ground. The Grand Army commanders, Robert Bigger and John Kane, failed to take much notice of the scant number of warriors that seemed to be defending this valuable umizi. As I mentioned last episode, it was home to one of Dingana's most feared warriors, Zulu Ka Nongandaya, whose experience as a commander stretched back to before Shaka. He was actually on top of a nearby hill, watching his home burn to the ground and his people being slaughtered. He was joined there by Mpande and the other commanders, doing what they always did, viewing the battle from a high point, so that they could direct their men. The Grand Army of Natal had fallen into Mpande's trap. 7,000 Zulu warriors were ready to go, and on Mpande's orders, the Amabuto began advancing south in two columns, then deployed in the classic two horns and a chest formation. Down at Ndondokasuka, the Grand Army was milling about, pillaging what they could find, particularly the cattle. They still had no idea what was coming towards them through the Zululand bush. The Isufuba, or central section, was aiming straight at the Grand Army as the invisible two horns or Izimbondo approached on either side. There were 18 Englishmen, alongside them 30 Khoisan hunters, joined by 400 Africans, all armed with muskets, standing around in Dondokasuka. In addition, there were 2,400 African warriors fighting armed with spears and shields alongside the white traders against the Zulu. All of them had a bone to pick with the Amazulu, and the feeling was mutual. The Zulu Amabuta was moving quickly through the broken ground out of sight of anyone in Ndondokasuka, which had been built a short distance from the Tugela River. The Grand Army was now facing a real predicament because their escape route was growing narrower by the second. The sudden appearance of the huge number of warriors running towards them shocked the English traders, and these warriors were shocked in turn to see that the much-vaunted traders were on foot. And Lela was to say later, they were easy to defeat. They didn't even have horses. John Kane and Robert Bigger swiftly moved most of their musketeers into a single group with their backs to the nearby Indulinde Hill, ready to confront this menace. The African warriors were lined up behind the musketeers. They'd counter-attack after the first fusillade. We're actually not sure exactly what the plans were, because there weren't many that lived to tell the tale, but from descriptions afterwards, we believe this was the tactic. Kane and Bigger's attention was fixated on the chest section, the Isufubo, and their first salvo caused the charging Amazulu warriors to stop dead in their tracks. The Port Natal musketeers, as they called themselves, continued firing quickly and with great effect under the command of Robert Joyce, who was a Scottish soldier who deserted from the British army in Grahamstown in 1832. Joyce, who had been part of the 72nd Regiment, otherwise known as the Duke of Albany's own Highlanders, had made his way straight to Port Natal after deserting his post on the Eastern Cape frontier. Joyce's musketeers were firing salvo after salvo, 
and the Sfubo, or chest section of the Zulu army fell back, dozens of warriors shot down, beginning to retreat. However, this was done in an orderly manner. They faced the musketeers as they moved backwards. This wasn't a helter-skelter route. As the Isufubo completed this maneuver, the Izimpondo horn sections emerged and began to encircle the Grand Army. Instantly, Kane and Bigger realized the critical moment. Under this pressure, they made a significant and fatal mistake, breaking up the large army into two sections to face the threats on their flank, believing that the central group of Zulu warriors were now on the run. The musketeers formed up to face the threat on the right, and the African retainers turned to face the left. In the initial minutes, this seemed to go well. The musketeers drove off their attackers, so too the African levies. But now, the two groups were supposed to join up once more, presenting a substantial and united defence to face the next counter-attack. Instead, the 2,400 African warriors fighting with the settlers continued chasing the fleeing Zulu warriors, and now they were being lured further and further away from the musketeers. A large gap began to form between the two sections of this grand army of Natal. Up on the hill, the commanders knew their moment had arrived. Zulu Kanogandaya, Mpande, and two other Indunas called Nongalaza Kanondela and Madlebe Kamgedeza gave new orders. They had held a reserve group of warriors known as the Imuva behind for just this moment and ordered them forward to join the Isifuba chest Amabuta and to plunge into the gap at full speed. As the yelling and charging warriors appeared out of nowhere, the African levies turned and saw what had happened, and all discipline collapsed. What followed was chaos as these warriors tried to escape, many ripping off their calico armbands that had been donned so that they'd be recognizable as part of the Grand Army. Remember, these African soldiers fighting with the English traders were armed in exactly the same way as the Zulu, shields, assegais, nobkiris. They were identified only by the Calico armbands. Ironically, this didn't fool the Amazulu, who knew who was who based on their shield colours. The central Isufubo section quickly reformed and slammed back into Kane and Bigger's musketeers, who were now being forced backwards up into Linda Hill. They fought from here for two whole hours, then began to run out of ammunition. They did not have horses and could not ride out of the ring of steel unlike the Boers had done. One by one they were cut down. Fourteen of the eighteen white settlers were killed, including Bigger and Cain, the latter apparently dying with his pipe clenched between his teeth. Of the thirty Khoisan hunters who'd fought alongside the traders, twenty-seven died. The African levies were pursued down the river and speared in the reeds where they were lying. Eventually, it's thought that over seven hundred of these 2,400 warriors were killed there, perhaps more. It was a massacre. The worst that the Port Natal settlers suffered at the hands of the Amazulu in terms of percentage of casualties ever. Never again would they be so badly defeated and routed as they had been at this battle of Tugela. It was the high point for the Zulu in their constant war against invasion, at least up until that moment. This incredible action has been almost forgotten in the annals of our history, but it's a momentous event for both sides. Dingana had suffered losses that could not be sustained, and his Indunas, not to mention the mothers and the fathers, the uncles, the aunts, the wives, the children of the dead warriors, began to wonder if this was worth the effort. He'd lost more than a thousand warriors, one-seventh of the force. 
Taken with the 1,000 at least that had died fighting the Boers, he'd lost almost 10% of his army. This terrible battle was so savage that piles of bones lay alongside the Tugela River at Lokweni for more than a decade, bleaching in the Zululand sun. There were also interesting finds. The Mahaya Amabuto had seized two of the settlers' cannons at Allen Gardner's abandoned mission station a short while later at Tongat. Even the missionaries had fled Zululand en masse by now. A dozen warriors managed to drag these two little cannon back to Umkungudlovu to show Dingana who was impressed. The Grand Army survivors ran back to Durban. Some had managed to make it to where they'd left their horses and rode into the port that very night, bloodied and cowed. The residents panicked when they saw this bedraggled Grand Army stagger into town because they knew as sure as the sun would rise from the east that close behind these defeated men was Mpande. But by pure chance, a ship called the Comet had anchored in the bay on the 29th of March. It had sailed from Delagoa Bay after its captain, William Haddon, had fallen sick and he needed to recuperate. So he went to Port Natal, aka Durban. Most of the residents and missionaries and their families now boarded the vessel, while some citizens preferred to remain on shore. More Grand Army stragglers arrived over the next two days, all reporting that the Zulu army was close behind. Before the Zulu army arrived, however, it was a Boer delegation under Jakubus Ace which rode into town on the 23rd of April. Talk about good or bad timing. Karl Lantmann was now the United Lagers commander and he'd sent Ace to find out if the traders would agree to Boers settling near the port. For the Boers, this was fortuitous. They could offer their protection to a far more receptive group of English settlers. Alexander Bigger was mourning the death of his son Robert, but he met with Ace nevertheless. Bigger said the settlers would agree to working more closely with the Boers in turn for their protection, and even to supporting annexation of Durban by the United Lager Voortrekkers. Things were so bad. While they discussed matters, Mpande's warriors were closing in on the port. They had made it to the southern bank of the Mgani River and were performing their post-combat rituals before their final assault on the port. As Ace and Bigger wrapped up their discussion on the evening of the 23rd of April, sitting in one of the small shacks near the beach, cannon were fired by the comet. Ace rode out back to where the foot-trekkers were camped at Mordelaga in the foothills of the Drakensberg. The Zulu army had been sighted, seizing cattle from north of the port and along the coastal lands. The rest of the residents now took boats out to the comet, while the African refugees who'd been living alongside the settlers ran into nearby bush. The Amabuto hit the town at 0900 on the morning of the 24th of April, and for the next nine days they torched it. More than 50 women and children who'd sought refuge in the bush were winkled out and killed. All the dogs, the cats, the fowls were slaughtered. All the settlers' goods smashed, their furniture, books, clothing destroyed, all coffee, flour, sugar, brandy, thrown onto the ground. Some of the Amabuta warriors, in what must have been a bizarre scene, dressed up in the women's clothing, sporting long skirts. They danced around the fires that night, showing off their impromptu drag queen get-ups. A few tried to approach the beach near the comet, but were chased away by the ship's cannon. It was fortunate for Francis Owen the missionary that he had convinced Dingana that he needed to leave Mgungudlovo before the Battle of Tugela, or Lukweni, had taken place. Dingana was trying to use Owen as a kind of shield 
But when the missionary said he needed to leave because there was now a full-blown war between the Boer and the Zulu, the king had allowed him to go. Owen and his family had avoided the Tugela carnage and were now part of the group on board the comet. The Zulu Amabuta finally left Durban on May 3rd, dressed once more in their warrior gear, driving away all the livestock, numbering around 4,000 cattle and sheep, and carrying goods of value like the metal implements and textiles. Most of the settlers thought this was the end of Durban, and indeed the end of Natal, and the comet set sail from the bay on the 12th of May. But a handful of the more hardy men, including Alexander Bigger, decided they would remain behind along with the African adherents. This wasn't the first Zulu raid on the settlement, and despite it being by far the worst, the traders were a tough group. They weren't going to run away. Given what had happened to them, quite an extraordinary decision, as they must have known that Dingana was not finished with his quest to cleanse his country of all English and Boers. Surely you'd send another Amabuta to crush them? They had more time than they realised, because at this moment, the Zulu king was more fearful of the Boers, and turned his gaze back to the west. He had unfinished business there. Before I deal with that, let's turn our attention quickly to Delagoa Bay, 600 kilometres north up the coast, because on the 13th of April, something momentous had taken place. Louis Trichard had managed to make it to the Portuguese port. During his five-month journey of hundreds of kilometres by wagon, his oxen had been decimated by stock theft, crocodiles and sickness, as well as lions. I've touched on his trek before, but now a few more details. Most of his group was suffering from malaria. As they rolled slowly towards the fort of José Antonio de Silveira, Trichard fired his sanners in salute. This led to a panic in the town. They thought they were under attack. Trichard had sent word ahead of his arrival, but the departing acting governor de Silveira hadn't mentioned this to the new governor, Antonio Gamito. So the new governor ordered his troops to surround the Boers, and Gamito interrogated Trichard. The Portuguese knew exactly who the Boers were and thought that Trichard had come to seize the port on behalf of the Fortrekkers, thus the gunfire. Trichard was shocked at his treatment. He had survived one of the most grueling treks of any Boer, and here he was being grilled about his motives. Carolus Trichard, his son, wept with frustration and anger. Eventually, Gamito relented and allowed the Fortrekkers in. Only a few days later, five of the Trekkers died of malaria. And over the next few weeks, 20 more would die, including Trichard's wife, Martha. Trichard realized they could not remain at Delagoa Bay, so he sent his son, Carolus, north to find a place for his people to settle. Thus, Carolus went on an incredible odyssey. He trekked over 500 kilometers north to where the Zimbabwean capital, Harare, is today. Then he cut northeast to the coast and sailed to Zanzibar. He sailed further north to Abyssinia and finally back south to Madagascar. Eventually, he made it back to Delagoa Bay and it would be a terrible return because in the interim, his father had succumbed to malaria and would never learn of his son's remarkable journey. And so, back to the main group of trekkers. Their headquarters, however, remained at Modelaga, Mudlaga, which was a very unpleasant place now. It was overpopulated, it stank, disease had spread. It was also difficult to defend against an enemy attack at that particular position. Landman decided to shift the lager to another spot further along the Bushman's River or the Imchesi River to Khatslager or Hole Lager. 
The trekkers were aware that they would probably come under attack again and increase their patrols searching in particular for Zulu spies. They captured dozens of men who were interrogated and most were summarily executed, shot, then left on the felt. Most of these were innocent bystanders, but the four trekkers weren't considering justice, just survival. Domini Erasmus Smith tried to stop some of the executions. He had counted 21 in April 1838 alone and realized innocent people were paying the price for the trekker anger. Gatslager lay on the bend in the Bushman's River, a few kilometers southwest of the existing town of Escort. Trenches were dug, the wagons were drawn together, and obstacles placed in the way to funnel any attackers into specific death zones around the spot. There were actually four distinct sets of wagons. On the left bank, there was the double lager and the Commandant Portgieter and Field Cornet du Plessis. On the opposite bank were two others, led by Commandant Delange and Rudolf. By the 29th of May, the move was complete, and the trekker confidence began to grow after a really difficult few weeks. Dingana was biding his time. He wasn't finished with the trekkers, but he was waiting for the moment to strike again. And Lundman needed supplies. So he gambled and led 150 men and 26 wagons on a trip from this new lager to Durban, where he handed over a formal letter on the 16th of May announcing that the Boers had officially annexed the port as well as the surrounding areas in the name of the United Lagers. He appointed Alexander Bigger as the Landrost of Durban, then purchased supplies and hurried back to the foothills of the Drakensberg in case Gatslager came under attack. Other foot-trekkers were in more of a rush. Around 300 moved down to Durban immediately and the hills around the port, and by September 1838 these folks were already ploughing and sowing their fields. Meanwhile, the foot-trekkers had had a general meeting on June 12th, where they had established a parliament, a Volksrat, and voted Jakubus Bosov as president. There were 24 members in this Volksrat, which had legislative, judicial and executive powers which were not fettered by the British Empire's laws. They could decide what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it. So the Fortrekkers abandoned the name Niva Holland and called their new territory Republic Natalia, and there were over 3,600 Boer citizens of this new entity, excluding the servants and the black men and women who were now also living alongside the Trekkers. They ached to resume their agricultural lifestyle, They were tired of trekking around the country. Eighteen months of constant wandering and being buffeted about had tired out the folk. They were not used to being cooped up together. They preferred their own privacy. They liked to live as they had lived on the frontiers of the Cape. Each loved to live in his or her own house, set in the midst of a wide space of land, where it was agreeable to catch sight of a neighbor's smoke from their chimney, but only far away, preferably over a distant hill. And it was felt that soon something decisive needed to be done to teach Dingana a lesson. Another commander was planned for June, but their reinforcements failed to arrive once again, despite promises from trekkers along the Modar and Rit rivers in what was now being called Ranja. The four trekkers had fewer than 400 horses that were in any condition for riding. The rest were sickly and emaciated. Instead, they raided African Imizi, and on the 10th of July, more than 100 wagons, heavily laden with maize and sorghum, calabashes and pumpkins, rolled into Gatslager. Things were still not good. 
The measles epidemic continued and it was killing the Furtricket children and their Khoisan servant children at a very high rate. Some of the Khoisan began to abandon the trek for fear of both disease and Dingana's wrath, taking guns, horses and stores away with them in the dead of night. We are not certain of how much Dingana knew about these specific Furtricket woes. His spies were now no longer able to operate with any real effectiveness. The Furtrickers delayed their new commando to spring, possibly September, or maybe October. There was much murmuring about that. The folk told Lundman they wanted action now. They couldn't live in fear like this, sitting still and doing nothing. Lundman reminded them about how the rush previously had led to the Fluch commando and its utter defeat. So the Volksrat sent another delegation to the Cape Colony in August. Their brief was to enlist help. Charles Soliers headed off to the Huntam district of Colesburg. Willem Jürgen Pretorius rode to Beaufort West, and F. Hatting to Graf Reinet. Little did these three know that they had ridden off on the eve of another major Zulu assault on the Lagos, because Dingana had chosen August as the month for his final solution. On Monday 13th of August, a Smos, a hawker, by the name of Butler arrived at Gatslager and reported that a Zulu MP had taken stock from two Boers called Buta and Botma just up the road. At first, Lantman scoffed. No one believed what Buta and Botma said. They were two mere herdsmen hired by the Gatslager families and prone to theatrics. Just in case it was true, Johann Hendrik de Lange, or Hans Donz, as he was now known, and Joachim Prinzler went out to see for themselves. They didn't have to go far. As they crested the first hill, they saw with a jolt that there was indeed a large Zulu army and it was heading straight towards Gatslager. This was a very large army, 10,000 strong. The Lange and Prinzler swung their horses around and galloped back. Because the foretrekkers were prepped and ready to go when it came to defence, there was no panic. The shelter for women and children went up in a matter of minutes in the middle of the wagons on both sides of the river as Dwemeni Erasmus Schmidt went about comforting the people. Many women and older children refused to cower inside the protection and stayed outside to hand out bullets and powder. Some would be shooting too. This Amazulu army was led by Nlela Kasumpiti. They were going to launch a tide of power straight at the trekkers, and these were the most highly experienced Amabutu the older married fighters who were so feared by their adversaries, and at least 100 of these men were armed with muskets. Facing the 10,000 warriors were 75 Furtrekker men. They were hopelessly outnumbered. However, a closer inspection would have revealed a few strategic advantages. The Bushman's River was in flood. The Trekkers had created a death zone, and they were also armed with cannon. The Zulu had left their two seized cannon behind because they didn't know how to use it. The Indunas would regret that oversight in the coming hours. What happened next is for episode 140. To contact me, you can head off to desmondlatham.blog or you can direct message me on x at deslatham. Until next, goodbye.